Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, today on the show, we take a thorough deep dive into conspiracy theories and specifically QAnon, which might be inundating your feed these days. So I do a significant preamble on the front of the interview, so we're going to just jump right in. I hope you find it educational. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. special episode today. Uh, The majority of my adult life has been inside of the wellness community or in the wellness space. Virtually all my friends and colleagues and people I admire come from that space. Um, Yoga practitioners and meditators, spiritual and personal development seekers, authors, writers. Um, And I think it's fair to largely categorize this community of people as curious, tolerant, loving, um, and from a, I suppose, a sociopolitical perspective, um, generally think of this community as as progressive, uh, a community that espouses um, uh, human rights, notions of equality, certainly sustainability, social justice. So it was unnerving to me um, and perhaps to, to many others um, about six months ago when we really entered COVID lockdown to start to see my social media feeds uh, inundated with posts from this community Um that were espousing many of the theories um, that are typically associated with the alt-right. And we'll get into what many of those theories are um, today in this episode. Um, And uh, by extension, there was an increasing uh, fealty or or support within this community of Donald Trump, um, which seems anachronistic. And over the last six months, I, I think it's fair to say that this trend on social media particularly, but also offline has continued to blossom. And uh, so the three guests on the show today um, were amongst the first to sort of, uh, I would say, astutely witness this trend. And Um, launched a podcast called Conspirituality, which I have found to be uh, articulate and enlightening and um, embrace a rigor for fact and science. Um, And I highly encourage everyone uh, listening today to tune into that podcast called Conspirituality. Um, And I'm honored today to have the three founders and, and hosts of that show. Uh, to join me to to talk about this phenomena in in some great depth. So welcome to Derek Barris, Matthew Remsky, and Julian Walker. Thank you guys for for being here. 
Thanks, Thank Jeff. You. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so I think I would I would love to start with just a, a broad overview um, for the sake of giving us uh, some background on what is conspirituality. And maybe Derek, if you'd be kind enough to take this one. Sure. Earlier this year, I read an article by a British philosopher named Jules Evans uh, on Medium, who was talking about this term, conspirituality, and about the overlapping of conspiritual cons uh, conspiracy theories with the wellness community and people on the left and how it was merging with the right. And it turns out that that came from a 2011 paper by David Voas and Charlotte Ward. So I went back and I read the paper, published an article on Big Think about the topic, and then that eventually led to our podcast because I've known Julian and Matthew for many years. And we've all been critical in certain capacities of the wellness, the broader wellness community, where we see that they were having issues between what they espoused and either how they lived or what science was actually saying to the best that we know. Now, with conspirituality specifically, the paper, um, they bring up, there are three things from the paper I want to address, which is, first off, it is this melding of left and right, because if you look at reality, it's really more of a circle than a line as, or a graph as it is anyway. So there are overlapping ideologies. And they had found three principles that were in nearly every conspiracy theory, which is nothing happens by accident, nothing is as it seems, and everything is connected. And those, those ideas work in conspiracy theories, but they also are very much part of the modern incarnation of the wellness industry. And the other two points that interested me about this paper were first off with conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theorists seem to be primarily a white male phenomenon. And what's interesting about what we're watching now is that's actually not the case. It is still predominantly a white phenomenon in America, but what's so fascinating about QAnon and where we've gone with the current incarnation of conspirituality is that it is almost predominantly female. And we'll get into those topics as we progress, I'm sure. And the other thing that jumped out, and we actually, Julian talked about Zach Bush extensively yesterday and yesterday's episode, but they write that conspirituality appears to be a means by which political cynicism is tempered with spiritual optimism. And I, I reference Bush because he's someone who I think really encapsulates that. But that is where we find ourselves right now in the situation of a pandemic and having to, what I feel people who have been politically checked out for a long time are then trying to figure out, oh my God, all of a sudden, why am I sheltering at home? Why am I being told for the first time in my life that I can't do something? And when they try to find out information about it, they turn to their social media feeds like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, where they usually go and that's where they're getting their political information. And if you are not schooled or educated in critical thinking in any capacity, you're going to go down these rabbit holes that are fed by the algorithms. And so conspirituality is really just this fusion of the wellness industry having not had 
that firm of a grip. And of course, I'm speaking broadly here. There are many people in it that are more critical thinkers. But not having a firm political and socioeconomic grasp, all of a sudden being fed these ideologies that feed into their greater worldview of everything being connected and nothing is as it seems. And so QAnon was just perfectly set up waiting there for them to be indoctrinated into. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I, I think, you know, we will, I think it, it's impossible to have this conversation without talking at some length about uh, social media and how it has transformed uh, influencers into news people um, to some degree, or I would say as vectors for the propagation of, of information um, without, as you say, any kind of training in critical thinking or any particular journalistic code uh, of ethics. But before we get into um, sort of the, I would call the failings of social media, which is a topic that, that warrants many, many podcasts, I, I think it would be um, great just to get a, a broad background of QAnon, since that in some ways seems to be the elephant in, in, the, in the virtual room, if you will. Matthew, you want to take that one? Yeah. Um, so thanks. And, and thanks, Derek. That was really informative. And uh, QAnon, uh, here's a primer. Um, and the subject matter is really complex and triggering. And that's actually part of the problem, those, that combination of things. Uh, it's difficult to get a grasp on the whole, but uh, I've made a few notes here and I'll walk through it pretty slowly. Uh, and the first thing that I'd propose is that the elements that uh, Derek describes in Conspirituality, um, we might think of them coalescing into a kind of country. Um, but then it's one of many countries that border the kingdom of QAnon. And I would say that people are immigrating to QAnon through the alt-right, the intellectual dark web, through white nationalism movements, through evangelicalism, through survivalism, uh, and also from conspirituality. Uh, and in the most intense incarnations, we're seeing them immigrate to QAnon from uh, you know, a resurgence of old school fascism, as the recent demonstrations in Germany made clear. Now, these metaphorical countries all have their languages and values. They're often conflicting. But once folks cross the border into the land of QAnon, they find common cause uh, through a very intense mythology, but also a gaming process that is highly structured. It's charged with dopamine, and it's also highly changeable and adaptable. So here's the highly structured part. Um, QAnon refers to nameless devotees of Q, who is thought to be an anonymous mole or a small network of moles. Some people believe that it's six people. Some people believe that it's 12. Uh, but however many Qs there are, they're all lodged deep within the deep state. And from that vantage point, uh, they post cryptic messages about how Donald Trump is secretly working to destroy a cabal of pedophiles who both traffic and breed children to abuse. Um, so 
again, trigger warnings here. The abuse isn't just purient, uh, according to the mythology. Countless children are abused so that their bodies will produce elevated levels of a substance called adrenochrome, which is then medically extracted as a kind of drug that will promote the longevity of cabal members while also getting them high. Now, adrenochrome is an actual bodily substance, but it can't be rendered for any such purpose. Uh, But in this sense, uh, QAnon hints at the specter of complete demonic social breakdown uh, that would precede an apocalyptic moment in which all evil could be exposed and purified. And that's part of the dream. Uh, And that's where also, believe it or not, Donald Trump comes in, because Central to QAnon faith is the prophecy that Trump, through an event called the storm, which itself is the peak moment of something called the Great Awakening, you might have heard some of these phrases before, will arrest and execute all cabal members and free all the children, many of whom are thought to be imprisoned in places like the abandoned subway tunnels of New York. Now, if you have some uh, history on board, this will sound familiar except maybe for the Donald Trump part. Um, This stuff is all a rehash of medieval and perhaps older conspiracies about Jews controlling everything uh, with a little bit of vampirism thrown in. Um, And these ideas have fueled various moral panics and forms of manipulation and nationalism for a long time. The current fixation on pedophilia in particular recalls Uh, the recent unhealed wounds of the satanic panic of the late 1980s. Uh, But like all powerful conspiracy theories, it also spotlights unresolved facts. So the satanic panic panic was largely mythological in origin, but the Epstein network is not. And here's where we have to be careful with the authentic emotions at play. We, We live in a world of institutional abuses. And so somehow we have to address that without making up new institutions that we can't see, that we can't directly confront to be afraid of. Um, Now, members of this cabal are said to be top Democrats like the Clintons and Hollywood celebrities and big media personalities, uh, basically anyone that could be described as liberal. And this reflects the political dexterity of the group and its very real material goals and impacts. In the background here is that QAnon crystallized out of another conspiracy theory that actually brainwormed very effectively the 2016 election. Uh, That was called Pizzagate, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, The main point here is that the primal power of QAnon is being concretely deployed now in favor of Trump's re-election, with several Q-supporting congressional candidates now virtually assured of office in January. They're all running as Republicans. I think one's running independent. Um, Now, analysts are really struggling to define the movement. Many people are using terms from the cultic literature. Uh, Some are saying it's an emerging religion with its own rituals and priesthood. Others are pointing to the influences of LARP culture, that that would be live action role playing, uh, but then also to the meme wars that emerged from the 4chan, 8chan, and now 8kun image boards, uh, where Q was born and is still operating from. But almost everyone agrees that there's no completely explanatory framework yet. Um, One 
framework I think we have to be particularly careful with is discourse around mental illness. BuzzFeed uh, recently announced that it was going to refer to QAnon as a group delusion. And there are two problems with that, at least. Uh, firstly, you can argue reasonably that Christianity is a group delusion um, or anything else like that. And then two, it's it's ableist to suggest that mental health challenges are predictive of membership in a destructive organization. Um, last thing that I'll say is that um, uh, if, if QAnon is a religion, it might be the first gamified religion, um, which means that all participants through the power of the social media and um, digital platforms that they're using are empowered as interpreters of Q's mysticism. Uh, they become soldiers in his digital army. And that's actually a phrase that's used and, and uh, committed to. So Q influencers rise to prominence as prophets, as translators, as artists, as orators, uh, you know, as wellness influencers. Uh, it allows every participant to be a hero. And as our friend uh, on the podcast, Dr. Theo Wildcroft pointed out in a recent episode that we did, this can really grant a sense of agency to people who uh, have never had it. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. That's um, incredibly helpful. And I guess I, I would follow up with um, a question or two around kind of the early genesis uh, of Q and its relationship to 4chan and Jim Watkins, um, just so people can understand uh, the the strange bedfellows that are um, that are being created here uh, with these ideas that um, you know pull at the heartstrings of people around child sex trafficking, which is one of the primary recruitment concepts for Q, but that a lot of this has its origins in 4chan and, and 8chan and now 8coon and Jim Watkins. Can you describe what those message boards are and what are some of the, what's some of the other content that's sort of existing within that those ecosystems? Right. Well, I have to just say that I'm, I'm not an expert in the early chans and their development. I have broad strokes and we can give some really good resources in the show notes. But uh, in general, the chan boards are uh, image boards that allow people to uh, post um, bits of text and especially memes uh, in anonymous format. Um, now, the anonymity uh, is kind of qualified by a series of codes that allows people to be identified or allows people to at least be verified as, as being unified identities. And, and that's how um, one of the posters named Q, because there were many to begin with, as I understand it, there were actually some competing voices in the beginning. Uh, one came to uh, the, the, you know, the prominence and the attention of uh, posters uh, and participants in the Chan boards. Uh, and eventually that began to move to uh, Reddit um, and then to the larger platforms like uh, Facebook and Instagram. Now, um, Reddit did a good job reportedly in, I think, 2018, closing down most Q-related uh, material on their site. Uh, and we'll probably talk about you know the power of deplatforming later, but that's been effective. Um, but what we should understand is that, you know, uh, the, the, the chans are really kind of like the Petri dish of, um, you know, the most volatile, uh, racist, um, 
uh, uh, alt-right um, incel stuff that the internet then goes on to, uh, you know, either either validate through mass distribution or you know let stay there. But it's like a, it's really a, it's really a breeding ground ground for the most radical elements of uh, and radicalizing elements of internet communication. Um, Jim Watkins is the owner and uh, founder of um, uh, at least 8chan and now 8kun. I believe he's probably involved in uh, 4chan as well going back. Uh, but he's an expatriate American currently living in the Philippines. Um, and uh, it's recently been um, uh, suggested, uh, I don't know if this is completely verified yet, but that he's the owner of the QMAP uh, site that actually posts the Q drops that the entire online community then goes on to quote unquote bake or interpret. Um, I, I, yeah. Sorry. I just think it's important to just give a little more context on that because 4chan was born out of Reddit. Reddit was originally an early attempt at becoming a, a restaurant delivery service that you can order on your phone like 20 years ago. And there was many iterations of Reddit before it became what it became. But what happened was the founders never really, very much like Facebook, they didn't expect what it would become. And it's not nearly as talked about as Facebook, but Reddit was a place where the vilest parts of humanity came out. And when the founders decided to finally start cracking down, there was a crew that said, this is BS, we're going to go and create our own. Then 4chan came. And then when 4chan got shut down, then 8chan came, and then 8kun. And then there was a feedback loop where it went back onto Reddit, but Reddit had the wherewithal to shut it down. But it is this the it really is important yeah. to point out that these are the unregulated darkest parts of the web where Jeff, you had asked what goes on there. Child pornography goes on there. Murders go on there. People post pictures of people they just murdered. I mean, the worst parts of humanity come out on these message boards. Yeah. And I, I believe and please correct me because you guys are the experts here, but that A-chan was uh, uh, eventually deplatformed because of the El Paso mass murder. Uh, he posted his manifesto on on HN. Um, so, and I believe Christchurch, uh, the the mass murder in Christchurch in New Zealand uh, was similar. Uh, just to give folks an indication on what's getting trafficked on these platforms. Um, and I, I believe, you know, the initial Q drop, which I, I think is the terminology for how Q um, communicates, um, centered around uh, the idea that Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested in, in 2017. Um, and I, my assumption is that has some connection to the aforementioned Pizzagate um, conspiracy theory, which... Uh, uh, evolved out of the hacking of the the, the spear phishing, um, successful spear phishing hack by Fancy Bear, which I believe is a part of, I mean, this gets so deep, of, uh, <laughs> of Russian intelligence that then got leaked onto WikiLeaks. Um, and I actually spent um, 
three or four hours laboriously reading through the Podesta emails uh, on WikiLeaks, um, searching for hot dogs and pizza, which of course were the kind of code words um, associated with young boys and young girls in this um, proposed theory, which has been debunked and disavowed even by the likes of, of Alex Jones and, and Fox News. So, but, but then this theory seemed to reemerge uh, in a variety of ways with Q and in a uh, strangely apolitical way on TikTok. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys have any more um, background or, or anything to add on that, on that front, but that's been some of my understanding of this craziness. Effectively, yes, you've got pretty much all of it right um, in terms of, I mean, I didn't know about Fancy Bear, but there was Guccifer that also, I think, yeah. took some credit for the, for the hacking. Well, everyone um, knows Guccifer, but Fancy Bear, that's, that's, fancy that's, bear, deep, that's some deep research. Deep shit. I think there was Cozy Bear was in there too at one point. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, I just, I just to think, give you... I just, w- w- one, one thing that I would, would add was that... That, um, you know, when you said, Jeff, that um, these various aspects of these stories have been have been debunked, um, uh, my brain immediately immediately says that that didn't matter, that it doesn't it didn't um, nothing has really um, uh, pushed back against the apparent factual basis of whatever these, um, these influencers are presenting. Uh, and I think that's because part of, well, there's a number of reasons for that, but the two main ones would be that, um, there's no, uh, um, part of the function of conspiracism is to, uh, jam signals uh and to create doubt in platforms to begin with um and so there's a there's a very strong aspect of all of conspirituality and QAnon content that is about uh the distrust of um mainstream sources or Mm -hmm. institutional sources uh in fact one of the most um common uh phrases that's repeated with regard to where the uh, where one's content comes from in the QAnon community is uh, Q writing perhaps once perhaps many times no outside comms um, mm. meaning meaning you're you're not to trust or to believe any source outside of outside of this source which of course is anonymous and <laughs> coming through cryptic yeah. so so I'd say the second reason that the debunking doesn't work is that it really sets something off deep and primal within a whole bunch of people, right? That uh, that we don't, you know, you can you can read. You, I'm sorry that you spent all that time reading through the Podesta emails because <laughs> because the pizza because the pizza and the and the and the hot dogs. Yeah, the pizza and the hot dogs just um, they, they 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 triggered something symbolic. Yeah, yeah, and I th- I think the pe- the one piece that you didn't say, Jeff, is that uh, this PizzaGate story and this need to sort of turn the the Podesta emails into a secret code that had to do with something absolutely diabolical led to someone going to that pizza place uh, with right. a gun, 
believing that there were kids in the basement, demanding that the door be opened. Of course, there's no basement and there are no kids. And this guy is now in jail. Everybody's locked down at home. Everybody's nonstop now on the internet. Everyone's civil liberties have been encroached upon, supposedly. There's a feeling of that. And now everyone is becoming a researcher and their own journalist at, at home. Um, and then obviously using social media as, as their own you know, versions of the New York Times or, or, or whatever media platform that you might hold as an example. And if you can find um, um, legitimate reasons to be skeptical of, let's say, big pharma, you can find uh, cases like Vioxx, which was a, a Merck drug that was approved by the FDA and subsequently killed 38,000 people through heart attacks. You can find um, examples like OxyContin. You can point to Jeffrey Epstein um, and and a legitimate, you know, horrific um, um, events and occurrences in connection with him. So it it how does one um, in your opinion, differentiate and find distinction between um, a kind of a sort of a healthy skepticism and and theories that essentially have no basis in reality or fact. Well, the, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge right off the bat, which which is often pointed out by conspiracists, right, is that there are real conspiracies. Uh, those conspiracies are exposed uh, based on strong evidence, based on good investigative journalism, based on arguments and explanations that hold up and make sense. Um, you know, with the Pizzagate situation, you have this very uh, dramatic, uh, intense kind of alternate reality and set of accusations that are being made. They turn out not to be true. Uh, but that turning out not to be true, as Matthew was saying, doesn't, it doesn't change people's conviction that something like this must be true. And, and the, the theories just keep morphing and they keep moving on. And there, there isn't a pause where someone says, oh, we were wrong about this. Uh, let's reconsider. So I think that that points to something really important, which is that healthy skepticism is this desire to know what's true as best as possible and to change one's beliefs based on what you find out. Whereas with conspiracy theories, conspiracists typically go through an indoctrination or a conversion process. And then these new beliefs are solidified as true, no matter what competing evidence or no matter how the arguments are exposed as sort of being weak or, or lacking an appropriate reason. Skepticism really starts from a kind of humility, ironically enough, because skeptics often get accused of being arrogant, right? But it's the humility of knowing that we're all fallible, 
that human beings can be biased, we can be emotionally convinced, we can be overly loyal to groupthink, we can all be manipulated or tricked, that this is just the nature of the human mind. It's not it's not a perfectly rational sort of way of processing information. So in, in healthy skepticism, I think it's really about checking for strong evidence, especially for claims that are uh, extraordinary, right? Uh, and, and, and being rigorous about saying, are there mistakes in reasoning here? Are there logical fallacies being committed? Does the argument make sense or does it just validate some kind of bias that I have? Conspiracy thinking really claims to be skeptical. So one of the things you'll see online a lot is that if you don't agree with some conspiracy uh, tenet that's being advanced, it's because you're naive. It's because you're a shill for big pharma. It's because you've been indoctrinated by the mockingbird media. It's because you're not willing to question things in a truly skeptical way. You haven't woken up, right? You haven't taken the red pill. Yeah. But I think if we look more closely, uh, Conspiracism really falls prey to the exact mistakes that skepticism in its healthy form seeks to inoculate us against. So some of those mistakes are things like wild leaps in reasoning, rejection of any notion that there are facts that can be agreed upon and that are knowable, right? That things are actually true or false. And, and of course, there are things that we don't know, but also being okay about that, right? Um that there are standards of evidence we should all agree to, uh, that there, there is decent in investigative journalism. Um, and instead of this, conspiracy theories tend to embrace more a kind of paranoid or extreme set of claims that validate the three tenets, right? Nothing is an accident. Everything is connected. What was the third one? Uh, everything has everything a purpose. Happens everything right, has a purpose, yeah, right? Yeah. So in a, in a complex world, rather than seeing the complexity and saying, well, we know this, we don't know that, and some of this looks this way and some of it kind of looks that way and, and we're not sure, and there's there's a lot of things going on, we have to find some way to oversimplify it and connect it that can be really satisfying. And through these ever-morphing narratives that, that are often self-contradictory, there's this attempt to see the patterns. I think the other thing about a conspiracy theories that is that is most disturbing and sort of different from healthy skepticism is they tend to scapegoat groups or individuals who then get targeted with slander and hate, usually for completely unfounded reasons. So there isn't this thoroughgoing kind of rigor and this, this sense of accountability of saying, well, wait, if we're going to say these things and go after these people, we need to really be, be sure. Yeah, I suppose that uh, ties in, I suppose, to some of the phenomena around cancel culture mm -hmm. uh, or, or in its various forms. But, you know, certainly I see uh, folks that have usually been in good public standing, like Mr. Tom Hanks or like Oprah, um, you know, being accused or associated with, you know, these theories of blood libel or, or uh, being part of the cabal attempting to, um, you know, instantiate some sort of new world order and, and part of the, the Gates cadre or um, to, you know, uh, through immunization to install a microchip that will, um, you know, um, provide surveillance techniques for folks. So 
Yeah, and, yeah, and it, it keeps morphing, right? And so I, I yeah. think that that's that's a great example. Another one is five G, right? So in the beginning it was five G. Now we don't hear about five G anymore. Uh, early on, it was that coronavirus was a hoax, and it was really a cover so that Trump could arrest all of these pedophiles. And when when including Oprah, including Tom Hanks and others, that turns out not to be the case. So you just keep moving on, right? And so you can slander people and accuse them of the most heinous crimes, and then when it turns out not to be true there's a there's a quick pivot to whatever the next the next idea is there's something that i i'd like to add here which is that um you know your list the listeners i'm sure will be familiar with how this actually plays out in a conversation that um that one issue after another will be uh, offered as evidence for some kind of nefarious and widespread conspiracy against all of humanity. But the person, the, 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 the issues are so disconnected and no person could be an expert enough in any one of them, uh, let alone multiple issues to be able to say with any certainty that, you know, well, if it's not 5G, then it's the vaccine. And if it's not vaccine, then it's, you know, uh, you know, big ag agriculture and if it's not big agriculture then it's uh, adrenochrome or, or whatever like there's a there's a skipping from subjects that indicates that the data itself is not really what what's driving the conversation um, and and so and so I always I always love uh, listening to Julian uh, very carefully unpack what good critical thinking and what good skepticism is and I'm always um, also a little bit sad to know that uh, the effort that it takes to develop, uh, um, these these skills is really it often I think mismatched to the speed with which uh, the 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 non data which is really emotional data uh, morphs and skids along. Yeah, you guys are all journalists. How would you describe um, or bullet point um, a journalistic code of ethics. If you are truly a skeptical person that is dedicated to rigor, to finding fact where it exists, what are the basic principles that one should apply? And I think, Julian, you sort of referenced one or two of them, but I think that would be helpful for people who, who are skeptical. I started, I started my career in journalism in the 90s, and there was a much different... Um, environment at that point that we were working in. And the general synopsis is that you are supposed to seek out as many sources as possible when looking at large-scale stories. Now, we should note that I've done a fair amount of research in the history of media. It's just something I love looking into. And there has never been a completely unbiased media ever in the America anywhere uh, there has always been slants and there's always been people who use it to game the system in that sense. So you have to understand that any story you approach is not just going to be unbiased. It's tainted through the lens of your own experiences and memories. And you are most likely going to have a starting point that is specific to you. That said, it is completely possible to approach these with at least somewhat having uh, open eyes to conflicting information. 
Uh, I have, while I was studying journalism, I actually, my degree is in religion. And I was the religion columnist at Rutgers for a few years while I was in school. And then I continued from there. And the what Julian referenced before about the willingness to change your mind is very, very important in journalism and beyond. Uh, I was very much had a belief in some sort of godhead for a while. And then I started studying neuroscience and evolutionary biology. And then I changed my mind. And I didn't think the evidence was strong enough to say that there was something, uh, some sort of god figure. And that's not an easy decision to make. But it just, it's just it's an example of what happens when you look at, you look at one field, religion. But if you want to study religion, you have to study you have to study economics, you have to study cultural theory. There's so many layers, history, of course. And so that that's really what is challenging about this is you you can never just attack any subject from that discipline alone. In fact, it's been shown that some of the, the best, the, the Nobel Prize winners and really thoughtful people are multi, multi, multidisciplinary in their approach to things. And we don't, really see a lot of evidence of that happening broadly right now. and But it's very, very valuable. What we also don't see, uh, and I can just speak as as somebody who's written for a long time, uh, but um, as in a freelance capacity, we, we don't see the actual process. And I think it might be worth just describing uh, a little bit. I've got actually two magazine features dropping uh, next week at the same time. One, one has been in uh, production for almost two years. Um, and the other one has unfolded over the last four months or so. Um, the one that is coming out with the walrus is uh, about the Shambhala International uh, community. And it's taken so long because uh, I'm trying to give an overview of the history of institutional abuse in this new religion. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that it that it's taken so long is that is that you need as many sources as possible. But if somebody's making a claim about uh, something that's happened, um, and and you can't get uh, the the perpetrator to respond, or let's say that they've died, um, you need documentation. You need corroborating witnesses. Um, you need, you know, your corroborating witnesses who are able to say, yes, this person told me that this thing happened to them and they told it to me close to the time that it happened. And, you know, my memory of it lines up with their memory of it and so on. Uh, that corroborating witness shouldn't be a family member. I mean, the rules just go on and on and really um, give, uh, you know, journalists who are working with some kind of integrity, uh, a lot of really strict guidelines about the claims that are made. Uh, because, you know, in a world of responsibility, you print something incorrectly. Uh, and you uh, are you not only ruin somebody's life, but you also um, but you're also sued. And so, you know, well, and I, on I sh- that, yeah, and you're bound by core agendum. 
in that particular regard right. as an ethic to publish a correction if you're reputable of any yeah totally and you know and so when people say when people when people talk about um you know uh investigative journalists being biased or or what have you um it's like there's a there's going to be a spectrum of integrity within the industry as in with any industry but i just wish that more people would know what it's like to have to footnote every single sentence in a seven thousand word um feature, sometimes with two citations, that then a fact checker takes a month to plow through sentence by sentence and make sure that you've not made anything up. Yeah. Uh, it's like, that's, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. And, and we don't see that it's working that way in many circumstances. And certainly with a daily news cycle, uh, there's a lot of shortcuts that are taken. Uh, but, um, you know, this notion that, that uh, people are this notion that that quote unquote the narrative somehow supersedes reporting uh it's just it's just not true people are doing actual reporting mm-hmm. uh, it's happening yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's it, the problem of overgeneralization, right? If you can, if you can name a few instances in which there has been shoddy journalism or people have been uh, corrupt, uh, and and this holds for other fields as well, then then this can be overgeneralized to say that the entire field is like that. Meanwhile, there are thousands and thousands of journalists who are doing really good work. And, and the idea that all of journalism could be marching in lockstep to try to, uh, to perpetuate some narrative is just, it's like, really? Yeah. Right. The, one of the most frustrating things about this particular dimension uh, of this madness, um, aside from the fact that people keep telling me to do my research and then link out to the Cabal movie on YouTube um, as their primary source um, is the sort of pan um, uh, criticism of mainstream media, particularly uh, around the topic of child sex trafficking. Um, because that it's a topic that um, I've felt compelled to learn about because it's obviously been um, the flag that this movement is waving. Um, and where I have learned the most about it, um, ironically for, for those folks that are trashing the mainstream media, is in the New York Times. And there's a gentleman over there named Gabriel Dance who uh, runs a small investigative journalism team that has been investigating child sex trafficking, child pornography, child children's sexual abuse for two years almost. And they are engaged in the most important work and traumatic work. They have no journalistic privilege so if they actually see a piece of child pornography on the internet they could face criminal penalty for that so and imagine rooting out this depravity every day of your life eight hours a day the trauma and the commitment uh that that these folks are undergoing as as a public service 
to root out this problem where it exists, to set up anonymous hot, hotlines, to work with NCMEC, to work closely with the FBI. I mean, this is the some of the most important journalistic work going on around this topic. And and the New York Times is perhaps in the in the crosshairs of this conspiracy movement every day as the evil media villain while you know they're they're trumpeting um you know this great cause and it, it, to me it's 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 the distillation of hypocrisy and and extremely frustrating you know ben shapiro gets a ridiculous times more shares on social media than the New York Times. Uh, there is a reporter who's covering daily showing like the Facebook shares and you repeatedly see Fox, Ben Shapiro, all these things and you don't see the New York Times in the top 10. And that really is a problem because you're right. One, one argument that I've made on conspirituality before is there is no such thing as the mainstream media. That, that itself is an illusion. First of all, media companies are competing. In a market economy, they're all trying to get clicks and getting people. So they're not all organizing behind the scenes. Now, there is lazy journalism where some outlets will just take what other outlets are doing and run with it. I mean, that is a substantial problem. And there, there are certain levels of groupthink that do happen in media, just like everywhere else. But that doesn't mean that organizations like the New York Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, ProPublica, they're doing some of the most important work right now and their share count on social media is nothing like a troll like Ben Shapiro who can just go on say whatever he wants and then people take it as truth and that that is one of the real failures of this transition from print journalism into mm -hmm. social media yeah it's like there's yeah. this there's this weird set of factors that come together when you go from print journalism and and the way that we used to consume news into the 24-hour news cycle right where standards go down because the 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 pressure to continuously be coming up with stuff and getting eyeballs on the screen intensifies then to social media and and i feel like unintentionally there's this intersection with populism and anti-intellectualism and a distrust of experts where now everyone's the expert everyone's doing their research everyone's a citizen journalist and people are in these little enclaves and echo chambers where you know very very bad uh sourcing of of facts and evidence is happening yeah let's hover back to the wellness and spiritual communities for a second, um, and and maybe you could give some color here around um, some of the susceptibility of that community to some of these ideas. And you know, I I often linger around you know the anti-vax movement, um, but I think that kind of ties back to a lot of uh, wellness folks that have a sense of sanctity about their own bodies um, and uh, and their own immune systems. Certainly we see a lot of that kind of a lot of influencers talking about that, uh, which then have has led to some of this horseshoeing. So I wonder if you guys could unpack a little bit of that phenomena of why um, wellness folks, you know, seem to be so 
susceptible to some of these ideas. I just wanted to pick up, you You said that um, there's been a fascination amongst wellness influencers and their audiences with the sacredness of the immune system as a ca- kind of rallying cry against the need for you know, public health measures, um, a rallying cry against the, you know, the data of epidemiologists. And it's a really key um, phrase that I think we can focus on because when I hear the immune system elevated to this kind of uber protective um, concept, um, what I really hear is uh, what I also hear rather, uh, especially within the context of um, spirituality movements, um, is something like a description of the soul. Um, that, you know, my, my whole, if you switch out immune system for soul in the phrasing, you get things like, you know, my soul is self-sufficient and it learns and it is one with, uh, the environment and with, um, and with, uh, my community and, uh, it's resilient and it needs no, and it needs no supplementation. Right. Of course, they're taking supplements too. So <laughs> put that to the side. But I mean, but the but it's, it's also, sovereign, right? It, yes, it's yes. Okay, so yeah, that's there's so many little ideas that thread together here. Um, there's the notion that it is uh, self self sufficient, and that's where we get the word sovereign, or um, somehow regally and independently alone and um and powerful and uh okay so there's a there's a description of the self there that's very aspirational which um meshes with the i would say the aspirational marketing of wellness in general right like the entire industry for the last 40 years has been selling the vision of a kind of um uh ultimately you know actualized self right so, so it's it's like the the wellness discourse has this thread within it that is fiercely independent. It's uh, individualistic, and this is all sort of cooking up within. Uh, I just want to remark that I'm 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 joining this call from Canada. Uh, it it's cooked in the stew of. Uh, American alt-health libertarianism, uh, which exists in part because there's no meaningful socialized medicine. So one of the things that uh, is implied by the, you know, people going on about their holy and strong immune system is that they can uh, overcome threats all on their own. But I'm here to tell you that um, the entire American public, I think, has been told that they just simply have to do that anyway, uh, because there's nobody to take care of them, really. And so, and so there's this intersection between religious ideas of like, internal purity and and safety but then also the political and economic context of well there's no such thing as the common good there's no such thing as socialized medicine uh we're not therefore going to trust public health because we associate medicine with predatory insurance companies and so on so um so yeah, my my holy immune system becomes this this um, sort of launch point for thinking of the you know 
atomized self as being beyond uh, any kind of uh, social responsibility, but also beyond any kind of social danger. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there, there's there's certain people who can afford that to have that point of view, and there's a lot of people who can't afford to have that point of view. There was a study. There was a study that was done a number of years ago that I've always found fascinating, and it actually opened my eyes to something that Matthew was talking about. And it was they they asked American and Japanese drivers the same question, and that is, you're waiting at a light, and your light turns green, and you see someone rush through to beat a red light, and they cross the red light. And American drivers th- thought almost all of them, "Oh, what a jerk! He just cares about himself." And he's just trying to beat game the system. Whereas Japanese drivers thought, wow, that person's in a hurry. They must have an emergency. I hope everything is okay. Mm. <laughs> and that really brings into what my fascination with collectivist versus individualist cultures. And so much of what Matthew just referenced in this whole thing has to do with the fact that we live in a hyper-individualist culture where you are expected to be an island on your own when really not, not, you know, Buddha said long time ago that the self is an illusion and everything is interconnected, but modern neuroscience research backs that up. There is no self without the others. And if you don't understand that interdependence and relationship that we have, your immune system, you don't have an immune system. We have a collective immune system because we're always trading bacteria. So this, this, the idea, we've talked about this a lot of sovereignty is part of the illusion that we have. And it's also why we see this increase in rates and anxiety and depression in America outmatching any other country on earth. Let's just remember too that sovereignty is actually has some racist baggage with it. Uh, the term first becomes popular uh, in um, the 1970s during white nationalist movements, especially throughout the Midwest. And so, uh, one of the things that we often, you know, that happens in our own social media feeds is that somebody will say, "Hey, you know, I use that word. Uh, that's a really that's a really good word. I love um, the 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 principle of sovereignty." And and my response is, uh, I appreciate that. And it might be time to, to to find another word because it's it's now dog whistling for a whole bunch of meanings that you you may not intend. Yeah, there there are so many factors here, and and this this one you know this idea of being in a, in a hyper individualist society where then the way that populist spirituality ends up taking shape over several decades is this hyper focus on I am going to become enlightened, I am going to become in a way kind of uh, immune to the slings and arrows of life in an invulnerable kind of all powerful. I think of the word sovereign as a kind of monarchical throwback, right? That somehow I will yeah. be all powerful uh, in my domain and that that's what spiritual accomplishment really is. And then there's the other thing, which, which you actually touched on really beautifully yesterday, Matthew, is this romanticism of nature, right? And this idea that uh, we can find ways to just live in harmony with nature and just use natural means of being healthy. So having a strong immune system, well, you don't need a vaccine if you have a strong immune system. And how do you have a strong immune system? You live in harmony with nature. You have this romantic kind of plugging into some earlier time in which uh, in which human beings were sovereign, right? In which we just, we, we didn't need chemicals, uh, right. you know, as, as, as that kind of misnomer. And then there's a, there's a third piece here, which 
being around the yoga and wellness community for the last 20 years or more, I've seen this a lot. And this concept has, has been very helpful for me, this insight that comes from John Wellwood, who's a transpersonal psychologist. And it's the concept of spiritual bypass, and it ties into everything we've just been we've just been talking about, which is, you know, spiritual bypass is essentially, he started to observe in the communities that he was in, a tendency to use spiritual beliefs or spiritual experiences to try to avoid or bypass or do what he sometimes refers to as an end run around the difficulties of being human. So around vulnerability, trauma, difficult emotions, existential realities, uh, politics, you know, oppression, you name it, any number of things can be what we are seeking to avoid and bypass by going straight to the higher truth. Um, Part of this spiritual bypass tendency, I think, can be uh, wanting to find confirmation for the higher truth through patterns and through seeking patterns that confirm and validate that are somehow encoded into everyday experience from the universe to show that actually everything is okay, everything is perfect, and I am this sovereign, all-powerful being who can create reality with my mind. And so there's interesting research, too, that shows that and there there may be a genetic component here where people who have a, a type of brain that tends to produce more dopamine tend to be more susceptible to seeing patterns where in fact there are no patterns. And you can actually give people who don't have that temperament dopamine under laboratory conditions and they will start to see patterns in the material that you show them that aren't there in the first place. And so I think that's an interesting piece too where Oh, and, and the, the, the additional piece to that that's important is that people who have this tendency to see more patterns and to see patterns that are not there will have that tendency amplified when under severe stress. So you take the severe stress of the time that we're under, all of this uncertainty, all of the ways that our un, unresolved emotions and traumas are probably being being pushed on by what's happening right now. And if you have this tendency to see patterns that would have meant you were drawn to new age ideas and beliefs about how reality functions, I think in a way there's a, there's a, uh, it, it has strong explanatory power for why people with those yoga new age type belief systems would find themselves vulnerable to other types of pattern recognition, uh, i.e. QAnon and other conspiracies. Yeah, and I, I suppose you could also uh, attribute some of the proclivity for seekers to constantly uh, be looking for the next prophecy or the mm -hmm. next guru um, uh, um, to kind of instill uh, uh, that same quest um, in in Q. Um, but I suppose also the the sense of community that it provides people um, in an otherwise, as you say, very very individuated time. And it's funny that you know you bring up this notion of kind of the the sanctification of the individual, particularly in the United States, and sort of this the the picture of sort of the rugged cowboy on, on a horse, the Marlboro Man, or you know, kind of our cutthroat capitalism and I, uh, I remember traveling to Japan quite a bit when I was in the music industry in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. And that was my first exposure really to people wearing masks in public. 
and I was completely flummoxed by it. I mean, I think I probably had seen it in New York that that Asian I would see Asian people adopting that practice in New York on the subways, but I never maybe fully computed it. But when I was in Japan and walking around the streets of Tokyo, uh, you know, there there were people wearing masks, um, and uh, of course I, I asked our guide like, "Hey, what's up with that?" And you know, they explain the obvious is like, "Okay, well, that person might have a cold, um, and they're." taking some level of precaution to not infect other people around them, um, which I suppose is, uh, you'd never see that in the United States. Of course, now that's come into full stark political relief that it's created like this almost ridiculous chasm of, of around political identity. But just, you know, that very, very basic notion that I might slightly inconvenience myself because I actually put some degree of primacy on the collective good over my well-being. <laughs> it just seems very foreign to, to us. One thing, go ahead, Derek. That's one of the, first off, shout out to Valor Records. That's how I first <laughs> I first right. knew of you and your brother uh, with Soul Live. Yeah. But um, with that, one of the most frustrating aspects of this entire year in America is having watched and been in, like Julian, like Matthew and yoga for over 20 years, having watched and been in so many thousands of classes where teachers say, love and light to all beings, empathy, compassion, et cetera, et cetera. And when they actually hit a point where they had to put that practice into action, watching them just get so self-involved, watching all of the empathy. I'm we, so we had an episode on this. I'm a cancer survivor. Everyone here has dealt with different issues. I have uh, a, an immune problem that's genetic with low white blood cell count. I would rather not get this virus. I'd probably be okay. I'm 45. I take care of myself really well, but we don't know. We don't know all the ramifications of this virus. I'd rather not get it. And the fact that we can go from a whole segment of this wellness industry who espouse all of these ideas about love and compassion and empathy. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, you were obese. You kind of deserved it. You brought it about yourself. It's really, really disgusting. One thing that I'd like to add about the masks is uh, an, an angle that I don't see reflected on much. Um, in order for the anti-masker to change their position, they would have to adopt the, um, the idea. They'd really have to entertain the possibility that they themselves are sick, that they themselves might be contagious. And that really contradicts the... Um, continued emphasis on, you know, my holy immune system, uh, I'm fine. One of the things about uh, wellness culture is that, is that because it functions in consumer capitalism, it always has to present itself in a certain way. It always has to present itself as being triumphant. Uh, it's intensely aspirational that way. And as soon as you put on a mask, you are saying, uh, perhaps there's something about me that I don't know. Uh, and I think that is, um, it's, it's, that's coordinated with a whole bunch of other ways in which uh, people who get indoctrinated into these ways of seeing end up having to project their internal fears outwards, right? It's like, it's, it, it's, in, I think it's intolerable for many people to think, oh, 
there's something about me that I don't understand. In fact, in my own health crisis uh, around uh, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, I was so deeply enmeshed in yoga and Ayurveda at the time that it didn't make sense to me that I wasn't able to self-diagnose. It didn't make sense to me that, um, like, and your then intuition, I, right? Right. My intuition was telling me that I was okay. Uh, moreover, you know, it's like the thing that you would do in Ayurveda for, um, uh, for, for uh, a blood clot would be to, you know, apply certain bitter herbs. Well, you know, the funny thing is that a lot of uh, bitter herbs and especially the leafy green vegetables that are recommended for cleansing obstructions in the blood are actually really high in vitamin K, which is exactly what you don't want <laughs> uh, if you have a clotting issue. And so, you know, it's like I had this intuitive, um, uh, oh, I know myself better than this. I remember, I remember um, there was a lot of pain, obviously swelling and pain in my calf. And I remember being in the sauna uh, and, and stretching it and then uh, massaging it and thinking literally that there's a blockage in energy that I can work out. And I remember showing the internist at emergency, uh, yeah, the pain's right here. And I started to put my thumbs in it to give it a nice good massage. And he said, no, don't do that. <laughs> do not do that. Do not do that. Have you been doing that? You could have given yourself a stroke. stroke. And I was like, okay, right. All right. All right, I'm. I am not as uh, wellness uh, educated as I thought I was. Okay, well, you're not um, as spiritual as you thought. Like, that's right. a problem. Well, I, was too, I was too spiritual Obviously. for my own good, right? Well, you have to look um, at why you manifested that problem too. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's oh, really no. like like we're talking about practices and ideologies that really say to the consumer, "You can know yourself. Mm-hmm. You can know yourself." And and so people become very protective. Uh, Protective of that idea, and that probably plays into anti-intellectualism and the rejection of expertise. Um, people within wellness really don't want the at the outsider saying, "Actually, what seems to be at issue here is X, Y, and Z." You know, no, no outside comms. Yeah, and you could be you could be suffering from something without knowing it, uh, without having believed that you could be, and therefore, quote unquote, manifesting it. Right? It could be beyond your control. You could be vulnerable to it and your intuitive, all-knowing, sovereign body wisdom could not have actually let your brain know what was going on. Yeah, until you die. Yeah. So I want to... Uh, unpack a couple other topics and, you know, respect everybody's schedule. There's so much that we could talk about, um, you know, from, from some of the recruitment techniques to the Trump as a light worker trope um, and everywhere in, in between. But, you know, one of the um, things I've really admired about your guys' work is that you, you actually have tried to point um, to valid concerns um, within some of these overarching theories and, and concepts, one of which is uh, child sex trafficking. And, and um, you guys did a great episode um, on that. So can you describe a little bit of how this issue is being used to fear monger and recruit I would say mostly women into this movement 
Uh, and then through the research and interviews that you guys have done, maybe um, talk a little bit about where this problem largely exists and what people can do uh, if they really care about it. And, and of course, there's every reason to care about it. I think Derek can probably point us to uh, the interview that he did with Reagan Williams. Um, but what I wanted to just say first is that I haven't heard anybody yet say, um, as they're looking at the um, in real life um, uh, rallies and protests that have been unfolding over the last couple of weekends, the Save the Children uh, tagged uh, protests, which are really soft QAnon or QAnon adjacent um, uh, events. I haven't heard anybody suggest suggest that uh, the mostly women and some men who are marching and uh, holding signs um, and who represent a huge range of uh, cultural diversity and seem to come from a lot of different economic backgrounds. This is not uh, a white male movement anymore, for sure. Um, I haven't heard anybody say, huh, you know what, I'm going to be really gentle with my understanding of these people because uh, it's quite possible that they are uh, sexual abuse survivors themselves and they have uh, not been listened to. Uh, they have been, uh, they are aware that uh, abuse never happens between an isolated perpetrator and an isolated victim, that there are always bystanders, there are always people who are complicit, uh, that that violence is, is networked and it's familiar. Um, and one of the things I've learned from, I mentioned her before, uh, Dr. Wildcroft, a, a good friend of mine, is that, you know, uh, trauma survivors uh, know that uh, violence is networked in these ways. And so um, when, when a language develops that allows them not just to um, feel as though their story is shared and communicable, but also allows them a certain amount of agency with regard to um, addressing it. It, it, it makes them, it gives them a heroic role of researcher, right? Um, because do your research means so many things. It, it, it means, uh, feel this thing with me. Uh, it also means, it also means look into yourself. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's, there's, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, care that we need to take, I think, uh, as we encounter people who, um, are, are both influenced by this material, uh, could be manipulating it, uh, but definitely, uh, for them, it's striking a deep chord. One thing Reagan pointed out, Reagan is a friend of mine who ha runs a, an organization, a nonprofit that helps rehabilitate foster youth through the arts, but she has worked in foster care for a long time. And a few of the children, teenagers she works with are sex abuse survivors, and they already have a deep distrust of institutions and people in general. And so when they see QAnon literature going out about this distrust, they are actually getting indoctrinated into this ideology, which is extremely dangerous. And I don't think that the uh, sort of liberal or someone who just comes across this and thinks, oh my God, this is so bad and goes to a rally and starts protesting understands the extra damage they're doing to actual trafficking victims. So if yeah. you see... Uh, 
chapter, uh, chapter episode 12 of Conspirituality in the show notes, Reagan gave me a list of like 10 organizations that you can donate to. So I'll point people there if they really want to help out actual victims. But maybe Julian wants to talk a little about the indoctrination process. Oh, I, I just, I, I feel like it's, it's so appalling because there's uh, there's this incredible exploitation of a topic that is so egregious and so painful and that resonates so deeply for so many people. Uh, I, I think the only observation I was I was leaning forward with was was that and and just that efforts against sexual abuse and efforts against sex trafficking have been going on for a long time, you know, and, and though, though the Q people want to frame it as if Trump is the, is the big sort of savior riding in on the white horse on this issue, it's, it's all just spin and it's all just exploitation of something in a, in a really heinous way. Uh, at the beginning of his term, he, he actually defunded, he reduced funding to a lot of the efforts that Obama had, had really, you know, stepped forward on and, and stepped up. Uh, and it's only it's only since I think people in his administration have realized that, oh, this is part of the Q narrative of how they're trying to create a, a groundswell of people who might not otherwise be vulnerable to this. We're like, of course, save the children. It's only since then that they've been very public about, oh, we're, we're allocating all of this money to sex trafficking. Uh, it's, it's just disgusting. Yeah, I found a very good resource um, at Villanova Law School is doing, um, they have a, a, a focus and initiative around children's sexual exploitation, and they are very, very critical of the QAnon movement as, as distracting um, people from where the problem truly exists, and, and in many ways clogging up hotlines and um, and being a, a force that, that might be considered antithetical to progress. So uh, I just feel, you know, this is a, a topic that warrants uh, an episode or, or many episodes, just because I do think that at some point it's important for people to actually understand what trafficking really is and all of its different expressions, um, because most kids are trafficked without ever leaving their home. Um, and, you know, and most of it happens, honestly, on social media, on Facebook, through practices known as sexploitation or sextortion, which, um, you know, are, are uh, you know, these, these heinous techniques that are employed by men, um, which, you know, I'll probably not go into in great depth here. But, um, but I just, uh, I just can't stress enough for people who really care about this issue to really spend the time understanding where it really exists. And one thing that I would add is on the theme of um, close to home versus projection is that this statistic that is continually paraded about within conspirituality and QAnon discourse, uh, and you know, there's this continuum between them, is that 800,000 children per year are trafficked in the United States. Um, you know, in the more extreme examples, people will claim that those children never return home. Uh, that's totally untrue. The vast majority do. Um, but the statistic is usually uh, trotted out to show or to to, to suggest that um, there's a widespread epidemic of 
stranger danger violence. And one of the things when you dig down into that statistic, which comes from a nonprofit that studies these things, uh, is that only 115 of those 800,000 uh, cases um, are actually uh, involve uh, stranger abduction or stranger um, uh, violence. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that the rest of those incidences all happen within family networks. Uh, and so um, of course, that is super difficult for any society to look at. Uh, those themes drove um, some of the excesses of the satanic panic in the 1980s and 90s, which was all focused on daycare centers, uh, because of course it wasn't parents uh, abusing their children. Uh, it had to be it had to be these caregivers who were now in charge of things because we all had to go back to work. Um, so there's a, always this externalization of uh, difficult and um, uh, unresolved uh, things that are that are at play and that become so compelling in the public sphere when something like QAnon explodes. And there are two things I just want to point out about that. One is notice the pivot, right? The pivot goes from something like Pizzagate, which we know has its roots in the satanic panic and the sense that the fabric of America's moral family values is being ripped apart because women are going back to work and sending their kids to daycare. And there must it must be satanic ritual abuse. It can't just be your everyday sort of nasty pedophilia that happens, you know, in, in, in real life. And, and there's that. But then there's the other piece, which is that we are then put in the very awkward position of having to be super careful about not seeming like we're minimizing something terrible by looking at yeah. the data more honestly. Right. That flip to the that flip to the satanic is really important as well because uh, it almost locks it in that uh, in kind of a projective fantasy. It can't be Christian families that are doing this. It can't be Jewish families that are doing this. It can't be the families that we know. It has to be people who have uh, completely overturned their values and have completely uh, abandoned the world of reason. It can't be us. Yeah. Ironically, the largest chronicled abuse has happened within the Catholic Church. Absolutely. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, in the remaining time that we have, um, I'd love to open up a discussion around how we address friends, colleagues, family um, that are propagating misinformation or disinformation, or in some cases, just really suffering themselves and, uh, you know, seeking out um, spiritual prophecy or um, companionship and community inside QAnon, um, what are the best ways to, um, I suppose, confront this scourge? I'll reference my interview with Imran Khan, uh, who runs the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate it's it's Ahmed. It's Ahmed. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That was my oh, mistake. I'm reading. Okay, I'm reading. <laughs> He's Sorry, the a lot of Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> so the interview uh, was fantastic, is but he... the <laughs> thanks, Julian. Uh, um... But this is core agenda in in real time, right here. There you go. Right. Imran Ahmed. Right, right. Yes, yes. I talked to him. I should have remembered that. So being influenced by Julian's uh, <laughs> secret notes, um, he produced, his center produced a very important anti-vaccination report and showed how 
predominantly Facebook, but also YouTube and Instagram have profited to the tune of almost $1 billion from anti-vax groups by advertisers targeting those individuals, as well as the ad buys that Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s organization, for example, takes out on Facebook to promote his work. And it really comes down to the algorithms. And if I go onto an anti-vaxxers or a QAnon person's feed and I try to combat them, I am boosting their algorithm and I am therefore making their content more valuable. So I have completely stopped doing that. When people engage with me about these things, I do not reply if they're trolling and I do not go on other pages. People will come onto my page where I'm trying to spread credible information and troll me or sometimes you know, have an honest debate. They are boosting my signal. So the best thing that you can do is to share good, credible, honest information, period. But if you are going onto your friend's page who's going down the QAnon rabbit hole and you're trying to bring them back, you are only going to boost their signal. So the best thing, if you actually care about this person, is to contact them privately and try to have a discussion or just to ignore or report if you think that information is actually dangerous. And I would just like to point out that that split between, um, you know, online back and forth conversational hygiene and what you do in in real life really points to something uh, important that we've brought up a number of times in the podcast, which is that um, the the traditional advice for people recovering from high demand groups or indoctrination or, or cultic environments always involves um, the reestablishment and repair of secure attached relationships. And so, you know, the, the thing that you instinctually would do when you see a friend begin to post fever dreams, uh, you know, reaching out to them and saying, uh, uh, how are you doing? Are you okay? It sounds like you're really scared about something or, um, yeah, I, I'm, I feel scared too. All of that work, that emotional attunement that you would do, if it takes place online, it plays into the, the, the content algorithms. If it takes place in real life, uh, then you have the chance at providing that person with um, a, an actual safe haven instead of a false safe haven, which is what they've found in the, the cultic dynamic that they're embroiled in. And so um, there's this really like sort of awful conundrum that we have, which is we are connected through social media platforms. Uh, they are exploiting our attention and our relationships. Uh, they're also uh, exploiting our concerns with inflammatory content. But worse than all of that, they are exploiting our needs to repair uh, and to and to uh, forgive each other and to uh, continue to to be in community. Because as we try to repair online, we simply extend the content. So, um, you know, the, the, the groups, the, the, the thing that you can do for the friend is you can be the best friend that you can be. Uh, do not argue with them. Do not tell them that they're stupid. Um, you know, ask them for, you know, the qualities of their experience that are, that are most valuable to them, uh, reflect that, um, establish trust first and foremost. I mean, you can get into the data a little bit later, but if, um, the first thing that you can do is to, is to reestablish a kind of core trusting connection, 
you've actually done what QAnon can't do, which is provide a kind of emotional security. Uh, what QAnon is designed to do, like most cults, is to confuse terror with love uh, and to keep people in a state of hyperarousal, uh, where they um, feel that their survival uh, basically depends upon towing a particular line uh, and maintaining a particular experience. Yeah, I love that. And I, I loved your interview with, uh, with Steve Hassan, if I'm getting his name right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who is, who is the, uh, the cult, one of the main cult experts that we've had who wrote this book called cult of cult of Trump. Um, and just this idea that if you can maintain a consistent, right, this notion of healthy attachment, a consistent empathic connection with someone who you really care about as they go through whatever cycle they're going through and know that it might take a long time and you're not going to get instant gratification. You're not going to just get through to them or deconvert them in a very short period. Right. But if you can maintain that relational connection and empathy, um, that's going to be something that I come back to because as, as you're saying so beautifully, Matthew, that's, that's what they're really trying to find through it, these other means. And it takes so much longer than the radicalization process. And that yeah. makes it feel hopeless, I think. I think when we actually look at the time that it takes to reestablish in real life uh, solid connections with people who are suffering, uh, we might get overwhelmed with this sense of, uh, oh, well, how could I do that with everybody that I know that is in trouble this way? And, and you know, you, you might not be able to, and this is where yeah, I think we've discussed on the podcast the, the, the Bhagavad Gita is actually really instructive here that you don't do the right thing because you're going to win. Uh, you do the right thing because y you were born to do it and, and it feel, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, and, um, it, and it feels good when you do it. It feels good when you do it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a beautiful sentiment. And I, I think it does actually cut to the heart of the best parts of the wellness community, particularly teachers, you know, certainly we see kind of a, in the commodified yoga uh, sphere of which I will admittedly take some responsibility. Um, but we see, you know, the teacher in front of 10,000 people. But a lot of, honestly, the most important work done within the spiritual and well-being space is this very intimate one-on-one -on -one work. Um, and, you know, I've taken that to heart over the last number of months and have put aside time in my schedule to have, you know, 60 to 90 minute conversations with people that I don't know that I might disagree with in, in some fashion. And almost always those conversations end with some kind of virtual hug hmm. and some tears and, and, and a friendship. Um, and I really do encourage people to, um, to really take that time to make that in real life connection. And I suppose uh, on the same note, to realize that, you know, we are existing on social media as the product itself. You know, our ability to be influenced in our behaviors and thoughts and, and ideologies is the product um, that they're leveraging and that, information is being weaponized in order to do just that very thing to to influence the way that we think and behave and uh it's uh it is a very dangerous notion and a 
a, a global psychological experiment to which we have not consented, and that might be the greatest um, conspiracy. So I'll, I'll, in, in summation, and I'm so appreciative of you guys and, and the work that you're doing um, on the Conspirituality podcast and, and all the work that you guys are doing individually in your own careers, writing and as thought leaders and as folks uh, really um, devoted to rigorous information, but also a tremendous amount of kindness and, and empathy. Um, so I, I'd just love if you guys have anything that you could leave, anything optimistic <laughs> that you could um, could leave the listeners with today um, to kind of round this up and, and knowing that this will be a conversation that we will continue to have. I'll just say, as a fan of history, humans have endured a lot worse than this and come out through the other side. And I know that doesn't sound overly optimistic, but it does give me some grounding to remember that there have been atrocities far worse than what's happened. But it really does, to take a, a term for, that's popular in the community, is it, it really does take people doing the work and going out supporting organizations and candidates that will help to reverse course and of course to actually vote because that is a systemic problem uh, that we face uh, so we, we do have the power in our hands to change things but that we do have we do have to rely on action right now yeah i would i would say um stay true to to your values and to your uh, you know what I sort of list as my conviction that that uh, reality exists and truth matters, and I think know that like all prophetic uh, movements, this thing has to collapse upon itself at some point, and we don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but eventually reality intrudes because it always has the last word. And uh, hopefully we will be there with some kind of, um, or some of us will be there with some kind of equanimity to, um, to restore bonds. Um, and that's my goal at this point. Like I, I, I don't see a lot of, um, it's hard to see uh, the, the ray of sunshine except almost internally with a kind of conviction that, uh, well, all of this stuff has been laid bare and now we can actually deal with it and uh, we can find out where our values lie. And, and also we can, we can, we can figure out, we can figure out what lasting relationships actually mean. Uh, and hopefully that, you know, in contrast with what we find in the wellness world, uh, those relationships will be a little bit more grounded, uh, a little bit more local um, and a little bit more resilient. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, through the marketplace of ideas, my great hope is that truth can cream to the top. Uh, and you guys certainly are at the vanguard of, of having the um, holding those conversations. So thank you guys. And uh, to be continued. Thanks for listening to today's show. I highly encourage everyone to subscribe to the Conspirituality Podcast, available on all major podcatchers. 
And as always, feel free to email me directly with any questions or comments at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.